Well, uh, as I said this morning, I think we've been promising it for a couple of weeks now, but this morning we are, we're into our series in the book of Jonah, and I've titled it uh, an un- A Tale of Uncomfortable Love. And this is how my week's been. I only got one of the, the banners up that Steve kind of put together for me. Um, I'm hoping that one doesn't wait till the working bee and actually goes up uh, next week. But as we roll, as we roll through this book, um, it's, it's just a, a really powerful book. And the more I've sat with it, the kind of more it's ripped me apart a little bit. And I found it really hard to write these the messages that are in it. It's this historic account of God's dealing with a, a rebellious prophet. Um, some paddling little pagans and an evil city. And the question that comes out of this book comes to us again and again and again is, how does the love of God that deals with sin and rebellion change our hearts towards others, even those we despise? That's the question. What's one of the questions that plagues Jonah? How, how can God be merciful and forgiving uh, to people who have been so violent, so evil? How can God be both merciful and just? How, how can he be merciful and, and punish sin? And part of the brilliance and part of the, the frustration of this book is that Jonah never actually gets an answer to his question, to his theological discontent. But rather, he's asked to examine his own motives against the motives of the God he says he serves. Another perplexing aspect of Jonah is that, you know, when we read our biblical stories, we want the characters to be our heroes. We want, the char- we want to kind of identify with the characters a little bit. Guys like King David, you know, King David had his issues, he had his problems, uh, but he was a man after God's own heart, so he becomes a hero. And Abraham, he had his weaknesses, he's a bit of a coward, threw his wife under the bus a few times, but he's the father of faith, and he becomes a hero. They have their problems, but they work through them. Jonah never makes good. In fact, the last we hear of him, he's camped out on a hill, angry enough to die. Because he wants a God of his own making, a God that's not free from his own constraints, not free to be merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love, but rather retributive and smiting bad people and and looking after good people. God's kind of burst out of Jonah's categories. So Jonah's this negative character. And he holds a mirror up to us to say, hey, it's possible to be good and religious and still not deal with your sin. But that is not a recipe for joy. That is a recipe for enslavement to bitterness. Because religion, works without transforming grace, actually leads to misery. Leads to you, like we see Jonah, uh, just sitting on a hill across from Nineveh at the end of the book, pointing his finger at everyone else while, and saying, look, 
look at these rotten people. Well, he himself rots inside because he hasn't allowed grace to do any work there. Uh, if you're familiar with Timothy Keller's work, The Prodigal God, we did this series here. This is, this is the activity of an older brother. Of course, we read Jonah in the light uh, of the life and death of Jesus. So for us, we can reconcile how a God can be both merciful and just. The cross is where justice uh, of God towards sin is satisfied. satisfied. Well, at the same time, the cross is where God is extending mercy to, to undeserving rebels. It's in, it's in Jesus we get the answer. And the whole biblical narrative gets us there, but it's not answered in Jonah. But the question is for us, how deep has that experience of grace shaped our hearts? And that is the timeless question that Jonah has to face as well. Has he experienced grace or does a rebel still actually live in Jonah? Or maybe more concerning... How much of a self-righteous person has grown in the place of where grace and humility should live? Well, they're the questions. And for most of us, though, the book of Jonah, it it was kind of left behind in Sunday school. That's if we went to Sunday school. You know, flannel graphs and those kind of things, big whale. It's a favourite because of the fantastic and dramatic events that take place in the book. It's short, it's easy to get, it's got all these awesome little things that happen, namely an extraordinary large fish that, that God appoints to turn up just at the right time to swallow Jonah as he's thrown into the chaos of a stormy Mediterranean sea. There's this strange little plant that God appoints to grow up and then it just dies as quickly as it grows. There's the city of Nineveh that gets a second chance when it repents. There's, there's Jonah who seems to get this second. There's all these great little stories and events in there. But the marveling at the extraordinary accounts of Jonah in the young mind begin to shift to discomfort in the maturing mind and the maturing intellect as it tries to harmonize what it reads in Jonah with the material world in which we live. How does it harmonize the miraculous with, with this material world, this, this static world in which we think we live? Plenty of ink has been spilt as people argue back and forth about whether the events in Jonah are literal, you know, historic events, uh, facts, or maybe they're more parabolic uh, Allegoric, just pictures uh, to paint or tell a truth lesson. How you approach this book will, as Timothy Keller says, depend on how you read the rest of your Bible. If you accept the existence of a God who, as John Walton points out, being God must be free to act in the world in improbable ways. And if you accept the resurrection of Christ, which is called a far greater miracle than any that takes place in the book of Jonah, then there really is nothing particularly difficult about reading Jonah literally and taking the author at face value, which I've done through this series. 
Other challenges in the book of Jonah lie around some of the accuracy of the recorded facts in the story. Namely, the size of Nineveh. You know, it's described as a, as a great city of three days' walk and, and there's, there's debate about was it really that big or was it smaller? And whether it had a king, because Assyrian kings never really sat in little cities. However, there's more compelling evidence, and I won't bore you with the 400 hours of work, uh, to support the biblical account, to, 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 dis, to give credit to the biblical story than to discredit the biblical story. So when the details can be defended as being authentic, which is the case with uh, the biblical story of, Nat, of Jonah, and the miraculous can be sustained and supported in a universe controlled by an omnipotent creator. Jonah slides nicely out of our Sunday schools and, and into our, our grown-up thinking here. And if it doesn't, then the book of Jonah is perfect for you because it is a book aimed at our hidden prejudices and how they limit us and how they create misunderstanding and misrepresentation uh, of the gracious and merciful God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who will do anything to transform the heart of a rebel, even put him inside a large fish for a while. But the biggest challenge we have, or the biggest challenge that we will face as we, as we kind of read through Jonah is what it's going to do to our hearts as it exposes the uncomfortable love of God for rebels, even evil people, including you and me. Well, the book itself begins as we would expect any book uh, about a prophetic agency in ancient Israel to begin. It starts off, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise. This is how you would identify a prophet. They bring the word of the Lord. And every time a prophet is engaged, it always begins with, And the word of the Lord came. But then it takes this unusual turn when the prophet is not actually sent to the people of God, but to an evil and murderous Gentile city at the heart of the brutal Assyrian Empire. That is unusual. That is a break from the norm and it creates discomfort in, in the original readers. Jonah, son of Amittai, is an 8th century prophet who is commissioned with this task of heading to Nineveh. But he's quite a heroic figure in Israel because it's Jonah, son of Amittai, that we find in the book of 2 Kings in chapter 14 who instructs the then king Jeroboam II to fortify and restore the borders and the boundaries of Israel which then leads to their continuing existence and not their extinction in spite of the Assyrian forces up to the north, in spite of the pounding and constant raiding that they have experienced. Jeroboam is actually recorded as being an evil king who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Still, even in chapter 14, he goes down as a national hero who saved Israel from oblivion. And Jonah, son of Amittai, is the prophet who brought the word of the Lord to Jeroboam that he might you know, extend the boundaries, that he might fortify Israel. 
Jonah is happy to serve a God whose willingness and compassion is to save Israel. And, they, and this willingness and compassion even shines through, even wins the day, if you like, despite Israel's habitual wickedness, despite its king who leads Israel into wickedness. And here is the first hint we get of prejudice, of religious prejudice, of, of nationalistic prejudice. That we are more deserving of grace than others. A sense of entitlement that fails to deal with our own backyard. Jonah had no problem with taking the word of the Lord to an Israelite king, even though he was an evil king. But when it came time for Jonah to take the word of the Lord to those Assyrians up there to the north, it actually exposes Jonah's heart. Now, Israel and Assyria, uh, represented here by Nineveh, had a brutal history. In fact, pretty much everyone has a brutal history with, with Assyria. Nineveh is a city whose origins can be traced back. It's one of the oldest cities uh, that we have on record as far back as 6000 BC. Uh, We find it there in the book of Genesis in chapter 10. It's linked to Nimrod. He's a mighty hunter, a fierce warrior. And, 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 And him and his ancestors built up and founded the cities of Assyria. And they set the culture of brutality and violence in place that they would become infamous for. Assyria's ruthless power, cruelty... And military might knew no bounds. A notorious and bloodthirsty empire that would, upon capturing their enemies, do things like cut off all their their legs and one of their arm and just leave the dying prisoner with one arm so soldiers could shake his hand and mock him or her as they walked past. They would force family members to parade around the towns with the severed heads of loved ones on poles. They pulled out tongues, they scunned people alive and hung the skins on the walls of the cities and those left alive would wish for this death as they themselves endured all kinds of brutal slavery and rape and abuse. They are not a nice race of people. And Israel had felt and feared the reach of their rule. Assyria had exercised a heavy tribute during the reign of King Jehu, 842 to 815, and they continued to threaten Israel throughout the life of Jonah. So you can understand why he's a national hero when he brings the word of the Lord that fortifies the boundaries and and puts Assyria back in their place. Often, in the face of the threat of nations like Assyria, prophets would urge Israel to repent and to trust in the Lord. Like, don't flee to Egypt. Don't Flee anywhere else and and find your armies. Come and and repent and trust in the Lord. He's your protection. He's your strength. At the time of Jonah, roughly 786 to 746 BC though, uh, Nineveh itself found itself in the valley of vulnerability. So often prophets would go out and they would ask Israel to repent and trust in the Lord. But here, on this occasion, Jonah is not going to Israel, he's going to Nineveh. And what's interesting is that they find themselves in this valley of vulnerability. 
Assyria at this point in time is in political and military chaos. They've lost their sole sovereign king and dispersed out about several different leaders. They've also experienced famine. They've also experienced flood. And then in this period of time, there is this disconcerting event, this solar eclipse that takes place that causes concern in these Assyrians that maybe the gods have turned against them. They're in a world of trouble. The city now is no powerhouse, but is under distress, if you like. And you might say it's the perfect time for Jonah to turn up and continue his fame. He's placed in society as a national and religious hero and give the word of God's judgment against Assyria. It's all over. There's no coming back. Certainly that's the voice of his contemporaries of of Amos and Hosea. But the word of the Lord to Jonah is not one of retribution, of vindictive vengeance. God seeks to make his compassion and grace an option before judgment, over judgment. For even this evil city, God sends Jonah to warn Nineveh, to call out to Nineveh, like a prophet would call out to Israel, repent, you know, change your ways before their doom. If repentance is not an option, why send Jonah? Arise, Jonah is told, which is a word that actually means go now without delay or without distraction. Head straight there. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Again, a prophet would normally call out against Israel or Judah. Change your ways or God will be true to his word and punish sin. And Israel has operated under the currency of this grace and this mercy. And they should know it. It should be in their DNA. Now here God is asking the question, do you merely presume on God's grace just for you or, or have you actually encountered it? Has it actually transformed how you understand yourself, how you view yourself to the degree that you understand your need for this mercy and compassion of a relenting God should translate to the degree that you can then go and explain it to others. Go tell Nineveh about me. Go tell Nineveh about God of mercy. Perhaps more surprising to us is that Jonah rises and without haste or delay does not go to Nineveh but flees to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Directed to travel over land, he goes to sea. He, he does the opposite of everything he's told. Told to go to Nineveh, he goes to the ends of the world, the other direction. He heads down to Joppa and there he conveniently finds a ship going to Tarshish. And at great expense to himself, he pays the fare, boards the ship, goes down into the hull, away from everybody. With the ultimate objective of leaving behind his call to serve God. He's called to be a prophet. He's called to be a Christian. Now to flee the presence of the Lord here is to flee the ser- his service before God. 
to renounce his role as God's prophet. He wants nothing to do with God, a God who extends mercy to evil people. He's so furious with this development that he no longer wants to be in the presence of God, face to face with a God who offers opportunity for forgiveness for people that he hates. To people that he thinks little of, Gentiles, the great unwashed. And to make sure this sticks, to make sure he cannot be in the service of God, he buys a one-way ticket to Tarshish, a place that literally represents the end of the world, perhaps a place where God isn't known. Well, not his God. Although it's hard to think that Jonah could have thought that he could give God the slip. He would have had on board a working theology of Psalm 139. Where, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? And Jonah himself, in a few short verses, we'll see this next week, will declare rather disingenuously or maybe piously, who knows, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Now Jonah knows he can't flee the actual presence of the Lord. But he wants out. He wants out of being one of God's servants, of of being in the mission. You know what? We can suffer this from time to time. When when things don't go our way, when, when, when we don't get what we want, when God doesn't fit the categories that we want him to fit, sometimes we can just disengage and say, well, that's not the God I signed up for. And it's actually revealing something of where we're at. Here we see a deadly decision to disconnect with God. And here's what disconnecting with God allows us to do. It allows us to disconnect uh, with concern or compassion or empathy with everyone around us. Jonah, fleeing from God, fleeing from his relationship with God has social repercussions. It makes him indifferent to the people around him. It makes him not see the people around him. And rather than sit up on the boat and chat with the sailors who are taking him to Tarshish, he descends down into the hull of the boat where he doesn't have to speak to a soul. A place of isolation. It's a disturbing principle. All indifference to others begins with rebellion and rejection of God. When we move away from the presence of God, we can be uncaring, unsympathetic to those around us. And that's exactly what Jonah wants. He doesn't want to have to care for people he doesn't like. Natasius is actually an unknown place. The place where Jonah wants to flee to, we don't actually literally know where there's several different spots it could be, but Scripture often refers to it as a place at the end of a sea voyage from where rich exports come. It's somewhere along the Mediterranean sea land. What we know do know, though, about Jonas Tarshish is that it, it exists somewhere where he can't fulfill his agency as, as God's agent of grace, as far away as he can get, to the ends of the earth he wants to go. So it's probable and most likely that it's as far away as Spain. Uh, you see on the picture there, some four to 5,000 kilometers from where he actually is sent to go, west of Nineveh. It's an extraordinary reaction. 
And we're kind of actually left wondering, what on earth is going on with Jonah? What kind of prophet bails on God? It's not until chapter 4 where Jonah himself blurts out why he made haste. He, he arose, he made haste, and without delay or distraction went to Tarshish. Jonah just loses his mind in chapter 4, and we'll get there, because, because essentially he's the most successful preacher in the history of the world. His message converts a whole city, and he's wild about it. And he flees because he thinks it could happen. In chapter 4 he says, For I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You horrible God. Jonah flees to Tarshish not because he's scared of being killed in the line of duty, or that's a real possibility when you're dealing with 8th century Assyrians. Jonah flees not because he's scared of failure, losing his reputation. He flees because of the possibility of success. Jonah runs because he fears that the word of the Lord that he speaks might just bring grace rather than judgment. Jonah has been confronted with a God whose concern for people is more radical, more outrageous than his subtle prejudice allow him to be comfortable with. He now is a God for whom there are no boundaries. Race, nation, religious piety, brutal butchery. God is declaring himself free of all prejudice and willing to extend mercy to all. Arise, go to that great city, Nineveh, and call out against it. Call out against it like a prophet would call out against Israel and, and maybe they'll return to me. Maybe they'll call on my name. Maybe they'll relent. Maybe they'll repent. God's love for the people of Nineveh is an uncomfortable, even undesirable reality for Jonah. We're taken back by the kind of hatred and religious prejudice Jonah and even Israel can have toward Assyria. But imagine for a moment as you're leaving church today that God just grabs you. Hey, hey Mason, I'd like you to head over to Iraq. Mosul, which is modern-day Nineveh. The ruins of Nineveh lie just outside Mosul in northern Iraq. And go and tell any radical Islamic terrorists that you still find lurking around there that their sin is known by the Christian God. And just go and call them out. You know, call them out on it. And because you're a Christian who knows what it's like to be called out about your own sin but find that God deals with it in a way that doesn't lead to death. Could, could you just share what you know about me with these kind of brutal people? Could you just go and get that done? Go and warn the most evil people, the categories that we can think of, that they're in trouble and unless they change their ways, they face judgment. What would be your thought process? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'd go, Mason. Yeah, you bet. Okay. I will literally buy you the plane ticket. I'm not even playing. Would there emerge, though, perhaps, hidden subtle prejudices? 
that we don't like to talk about? Would your first thought be, well, hey, how about Bangladesh? Yeah. Our church has an existing relationship with them. Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I think they're more deserving of the gospel. Would you look for a more appealing mission? Would you look for a more appealing option? Maybe he doesn't ask you to go to Mosul. Maybe he just asks you to stop, spend some time with a homeless person, help out in a coast project, or any of a thousand inconvenient, uncomfortable disruptions of your normal rhythm of life. Maybe he asks you to relocate your family, to share the life of Jesus with people. You know, I've kind of heard that happens. What response quickly arises? What response quickly arises in you? Is it love and concern for people? Or is it love and concern for self? Is it grace and mercy? Or are there subtle indifferences masked behind a good and busy life? Jonah is saying to God, essentially... I do not trust the way you exercise your goodness, wisdom, and justice. It's uncomfortable to me. I'd rather not be a prophet in the service of God if it means carrying grace to people I hate, to people I feel don't deserve it. This is a prophet whose heart is in rebellion to grace. Jonah has a religious understanding of God, of God's love and God's grace. It was all head, no heart. He presumed on the favor of God because of who he was, not because of what he had encountered, what he had experienced himself. And now God goes after that in Jonah and he cuts up rough about it. God has smashed the boundaries and categories of his faith. Perhaps the most confronting thing about Jonah is that he is a good man a national hero, a religious pillar. He is a role model. Yet when God nudged him, when he's nudged by God to stretch his faith, it begins to expose the shallowness of it, that it's capable of bitterness and lacking in love. Nineveh might be an evil city, known for its wickedness, but Jonah's problem is bigger He despises grace because he's never encountered it. He's never truly been transformed by God's word to him. His heart has been all about duty, not delight. He's been all about behavior, not worship. He's not a sinner saved by a gracious God. He's a good person doing good things for a God he hopes he can control. What about us? As we begin to understand Jonah, what of our own hearts? God has come toward us in the word made flesh, in Jesus. He was in heaven, enjoying the praise and adoration of the universe when the Father says, Arise, go, go to that earth. And identify with people you, who hate you. 
who, unlike your surroundings at the moment, refuse to worship you. Go to that great planet and call them out. Call them out. Call them out to salvation. Warn them of the consequences of sin, but point them to a God of grace. Jesus actually refers to himself as the greater Jonah in Matthew 12, 38-42. That in him a greater sign than the one recorded about Jonah will be seen. And, and we take the obvious uh, reference the, to, there to be of how Jesus would bring about the love of God for wicked people through his death, through his own entombment, and then his resurrection back to life three days later. Similar to the story of Jonah in the fish. But what if there's another layer, if you like? What if the greater miracle that Jonah, of Jonah, that it's coming in Jesus, is that unlike Jonah, you can experience deep heart change. You can have your heart of religious goodness or wicked rejection transformed by grace. Maybe that's the greater miracle. That you can experience grace. And know it. The cross, the empty tomb, is not merely an event, not a party trick, not just a greater miracle in and of itself. It's an event that that has effects that that, that, that affect us. It's an event that tells us that we are far more sinful than we ever thought. That our sin would require the death of God to, 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 to find justice. But it's an event that tells us that we are far more loved than we ever dared dream. Because as Jesus comes out of the tomb, he says, you too can share in this resurrected life. You too can experience grace. Without a profound experience of grace found in Jesus, we run the risk of being like Jonah. Religion without grace leads to indifferent and cruel prejudices. And how is your heart this morning? Has it done? Is it doing business with a loving God? Or is it harboring subtle, deadly prejudices? Mercifully, we discover here as we go through this book of Jonah, a relentless God. We're three verses in. The rest of the book is God pursuing Jonah, staying engaged. He is a God not constrained by a law of vindictiveness, but by a law of gracious love that sees him pursue the rebel, that sees him sit with the sinner that sees him engage with their heart, that it might experience grace, that we might become agents of grace to those in need.